part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Uh, What would it look like if we really lived out this more of Jesus and less of ourselves, more of Christ-likeness in our lives and we just kind of got rid of, or as much as we could, of the, you know this sinful, selfish kind of place that we live sometimes when it's just kind of us living for ourselves. And so we've been going through and been looking at all kinds of different uh, strategies that we see there in the Bible of just living this out. And we're not trying to make it into a formula. We're certainly not trying to make it into, okay, the, you do these things and God loves you more. No, we're simply trying to say that as Christ has blessed us, as Christ comes into our heart and our lives, the very Spirit of God enables us to be able to live this out. And He gives us the opportunity to truly, as we said a couple weeks ago, to worry less and to trust more. That's not a skill that you learn. That's the very power of God. It's just going, okay, God, you've proven yourself faithful. Everything I know about you is faithful. And so I've learned I can trust you. And the very Spirit of God enables that faith within us. Last week we talked about rest. And what did it really mean when he said, Come unto me, that you that are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And we said that, you know, because we are such an overwhelmed society, that the first thing that we really look at when we hear that word rest is our physical, our mental, or our emotional state. But that was the salvation passage. Now, that whole passage was, he was just saying to a lost world, Man, if you don't get the spiritual right... The emotional, the mental, and the, you know, the physical, it's not, you're not going to rest. And so we begin to learn these different things. And I hope that this series, even though we look at familiar things, worry and stress and all these kind of things, that it's helping you to follow Christ and, and truly say, okay, if this is going to be the year, that it's going to be more of Jesus and less of me, this is what it looks like as I begin to learn these truths and apply them to my life. This morning we're going to look at a phrase that maybe if, if you've grown up in church or been around church a lot, you've heard this, to speak the truth in love. And maybe you've heard that, but we want to go back and we really want to see that in action. And we want to see Christ as the main actor. <laughs> that we watch him with one of his disciples, Peter, and we see how he really did this speaking truth in love. Because here's the thing, I'll, I'll tell you right up front, guys, every one of us have a propensity to one or the other. We have a leaning. I don't know that there's a single person in here that can say, you know, Bobby, I'm actually pretty balanced. Uh, my truth meter and, and you know, my, my love meter, they're, they're, they're both at 100% max, and, and I do that really actually both well. No. There are some people, who are the love people in here? You know, they're just, you know, your heart kind of goes that way, and it's really hard for you to sit there and go, you know, man, I want to tell him this, but I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So love people? Yeah, I, yeah. I don't even want to raise my hand because, you know, that would be drawn. How many of y'all are the truth people? Yeah. You know, and there's times in life you just come lock and loaded. You know, you, you're just ready. You're going, okay, just step out of line and I'll help you with that. <laughs> Dance, cowboy. You know, it's one of those things where you all of a sudden, you know, you're just ready. Well, how do we do this in Christ-like love? Folks, in a, there's times in our lives when words become reality, spoken word, comes a reality. Word is very important in the Word of God. Words. He says, let this be created, and it was created. Let this come. And so words are powerful in, 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 uh, in the Bible, and we begin to see that words in our life, there's a time when there's spoken words, and then there's a reality that begins to follow that. For example, when the pastor says, I now pronounce you 
husband and wife. Those are words. And then you start to walk into this marital bliss. I was then, you know, there was a lot of, I saw a couple of gasps at that. <laughs> you begin to walk and say, okay, now we're husband and wife, and now we have these vows that we committed ourselves to, and now we have to carry out these vows. Uh, when you go to buy your house, you know, when the realtor calls and says, hey, they accepted your offer, you have a house. It's one of the most joyous times and one of the most scary times of your entire life. Now we have a mortgage. What are we going to do, honey? So times when words begin to really take on some weight. They become a reality. And that's what we've been trying to do the last five, six weeks. What does it really mean when John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease? What does that look like when we really start to live and breathe that out in our lives? And we've looked again at humility, trust, worry. Now, how, how to trust more and worry less, how to stop wrestling with God and, and resting in the finished work of God. This morning we're going to look at this passage that we begin to see. Uh, again, you're probably most familiar with it in Ephesians, but we want to see it in action. Now, one thing about this passage of speaking truth and love that I want you to know from the very beginning, there's a word that we're going to use a lot today, and that is the word relationship. Because when we, you will not be able to get the whole biblical meaning of speaking truth and love if you do not understand that this is all centered around biblical relationships, loving relationships. And when it was spoken in Ephesians, we'll get there in a little while, it was spoken in the context of a church and the people of a church. And so we always want to keep it in context, even though it has application to our everyday lives. In Ephesians 4.15, where we read that passage... Now, I realize I just told you to go to Mark chapter 8, so you can stay there. But in Ephesians 4.15, when it actually uses that terminology, speak the truth in love, the Apostle Paul was addressing some things in the church where he wanted unity. There were some hurt feelings. There were some relationships that were kind of frictional. There were some things that were just not, everybody wasn't just standing around and, and best friends with one another. And so he begins to tell them that he wants them to be unified. And one of the ways he said that you can be unified is the speaking truth in love. Now, he wasn't just talking about, okay, check out your neighbor's life. He was speaking in the context of false doctrine. When you go back, and there was false doctrine that was coming. In other words, to start to believe in something that is not true, whether it was of strictly a theological nature or if it was just in a real truth relational factor. That when we begin to start believing lies. Have you ever begun to believe a lie? Yeah. I promise you it can happen almost any day. You can be a, a follower of Christ, a lover of Christ, and yet in this world, not only do we have to contend with our own old man, but we live in a broken down, sinful, chaotic world that is always kind of screaming out, hey, this is true. And yet, it's not always true. Sometimes it's a half-truth, so it's believable. That's what Paul was addressing. And he begins to address this with that church at Ephesus. And he begins to address it in this context of false doctrine. And I want unity in the church. And he says, he says speak truth in love. But we see that relationships are at the core of that. He's spoken in the, in the context of a church body. So with that in mind, kind of knowing where that phrase comes from, the context that it originally was given in, let's go back now to Mark chapter 8. And we're going to see this occasion that was probably two two and a half years into the ministry of Christ. He has uh, been out preaching. He's done miracles. He's done things. And yet, 
people are still not always catching on that he is the Messiah. And so about two and a half years into it, of a three-year ministry, Christ comes out in this passage with two questions. His disciples are around. We find out a little bit later that there's probably some others that are maybe kind of a little bit farther away, but maybe they can hear part of this. But he's directly talking to his disciples, and he gives them two questions. The first question is, who do people say that I am? Now, again, think, two, two and a half years into his ministry, he's done miracles. He has certainly made proclamation that he is the Son of God. He has said all these different things, but he begins to ask them, who do people say that I am? And so they begin to answer that, and they, they said, you know, some people think you're John the Baptist, some people think that you're uh, one of the old prophets, somebody thinks that you're, you know, Elijah that's come back, and they had different answers. And then he makes it very personal. Hey, not so much what is the talk on the street and things that you've heard. I'm not taking a popularity poll here. Who do you say that I am? You're my disciples. You've been following me for two years now, two and a half years. Who do you say that I am? And that's when we come into that place where words become reality. Spoken word takes on weight. Look at verse 31. Because right before this, Peter goes, you are the Christ. Seems really simple. I don't know that many of us today would vocally disagree if I came out, who do you say that he is? He is the Christ. I think that most of us would give a verbal and a mental and, and a spiritual affirmation that you are the Christ. But there's times in our lives when words become reality and they carry weight. I pronounce you husband and wife. And all of a sudden the challenge of marriage and two lives becoming one in a less than perfect world. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. But look at the reality of these words, verse 31. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It's not that he has not mentioned this, but before sometimes it was almost like in code. The temple's going to fall down, and if this temple goes down, I will rebuild it in three days. And they're going, what does he mean? This temple really can fall down, and he can rebuild it in three days? And so a lot of times that we see previous to this time that Jesus starts speaking of his death and a resurrection, it's not just, hey, here's what's going to happen. This time, <laughs> there's no ifs, ands, or buts. In fact, if you look down in verse 32, what are the first words of verse 32? Go ahead and say them out loud. It's okay. First words of verse 32. And he said this plainly. In other words, he wasn't saying, it's like a temple that will fall down and I'll rebuild it in three years. He's not using figurative language. He's not using kind of object lessons. He says, okay, guys, when I say that I'm going to die, I'm going to really die. When I say that I'm going to be rejected, I'm really going to be rejected. And he spoke this plainly to them. Well, Peter hears this. And Peter rejects it. Peter actually finds, by his response, I think it would be safe to say that Peter actually finds it offensive. Now, why is he so offended? Because this is not the Messiah that they had expected all these years. 
You see, when they heard of a Messiah, they thought of a, of a majestic Messiah. Uh, they were thinking Isaiah, okay, a whole room filled up just with his robe, and when he speaks, things shake. They were thinking about a warrior kind of Messiah. Come in there with one fell swoop, slays the enemy. They, they were thinking of a kingly Messiah. They were thinking majestic. They were thinking all these things. And now Christ comes in and says, okay, this is actually the Messiah that I'm going to be. Guys, we are in a culture and we are people, we like winners. We like winners. And the mindset that they had of the Messiah was a winner Messiah. A King David on steroids. You know how sometimes the fable gets larger than life? Maybe we've done that with George Washington. Maybe we've done that with Abraham Lincoln. Never told a lie. Chopped down. You know, all kinds of things. And then the fable starts to grow. And I imagine that by the time this comes around, David, King David, with all of his, the things that he's done wrong, still is admired in such a way that they're going, man, if he's a King David plus... That's what we're looking for in this Messiah. We love winners. They love winners. You look at verse 31, that does not sound like winning. Look at those words. Suffer many things. Be rejected. Be killed. Peter doesn't just disagree. I think he's offended by this. He can't absorb it. It's not like my mom years ago when they had already been out with the microwave for 20 plus years and mom still thought that if she put something in there and touched the button that everybody in the house was going to start glowing. (laughs) Mom would just not, you know, mom and technology (laughs) just never kind of mixed and so mom was just always scared. This this isn't just a scare for me. This is actually, I think, it's safe to say because of the way that he begins to respond to it. Hey, this is not going to happen. I will die. If, if it's because they're going to overwhelm us, I, I'll be the front one in line. And I'll put my life. And he just doesn't get it. Verse 32, and he said plainly, he said this plainly. And it's hard for us to manage. And, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you even imagine taking the Lord Jesus aside? You can imagine taking the pastor aside. You can imagine taking some other person aside and maybe expressing disagreement, maybe even borderline on rebuking. But can you imagine going up to Christ himself and rebuking him? Not just, you know, I don't get it. Can you explain this a little bit more? Can you color in the rest of the way? That's not what it says. He didn't go in there and say, you know... I've got another plan. You open to plans? I've got another plan, and will this one work? He takes Jesus aside, and he begins to rebuke him. This is the same word in the Greek that is used when we're rebuking demons in the Scripture. This is the, uh, a word that means to censure. The Greek word actually means to censure. It means when you censure somebody, what do you do? You quiet them. When you censure something, you cut them out. That's the word that's used here. He goes and he's basically 
Christ, I silence you. I censure you to speak this anymore. So I think it's safe to say that it's not just that Peter doesn't quite understand. He's actually very offended by this. And that's when we see in verse 33 this response of Christ that we'll kind of focus on for the rest of the time this morning. Because you might be asking, okay, what does this mean? I thought we were talking about speaking truth in love. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. It's the same Greek word there. He censures Peter. He silences Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We've read that. We've understood that. We've heard sermons on it. It sounds so harsh. It kind of seems out of character of Jesus a little bit. This guy who's always going up, hey, you need a friend? (laughs) We always get this picture of Jesus that he's the one that that finds the the widow and and blesses her, that finds the the, the wayward and comes and, and befriends them. But to take a follower, somebody who's been with him for two and two and a half years, now why did he do that? I want you to know, remember, when, what was the context back in Ephesians when it says to speak the truth in love? When the church started believing what? False what? Doctrine. A false belief. Not just, you know, I really don't like those pants. Or I think we should sing more songs. Or I think we should sing shorter songs. Or I think we should stand. I think we should. This isn't one of those. This is false doctrine. This is foundational belief. And that's the, what is the context of that in Ephesians 4. And I promise you that's the context of this right here. Why does Jesus censor, rebuke Peter? Because Peter not accepting this would be accepting false doctrine. Any other picture of Christ, except for the one that goes to the cross and pays the payment of sin for sinful man that is buried and rises again on the third day. Anything besides that as a means of salvation is false doctrine, guys. So what does Jesus do? When the words of that great theologian, Barney Fife, he nips it in the bud. I mean, he really, he just, he, he just stops it. He censures it. He stops it right there. You don't think this way. And then we see this get thee behind me, Satan. That's kind of puzzled theologians for years. They, some people make a lot of it. I think he's just saying this is very much just the most opposite way of thinking besides the thing of God. Maybe there is a reference back when Jesus was under the, you know, his time of temptation in the desert. There's a lot of different things that, that different theologians want to do with that part, get thee behind me, Satan. And they're wonderful to discuss. I think the main thing that we take back here is that he's addressing false doctrine. And he's calling it what it is. Now, now the question is, why? The end of verse 33, he says, For you're setting your mind on the things, not on the things of God, but the things of man. He rebukes Peter because this proposal that Peter would have, that somehow Jesus could accomplish what we needed, by any other means, without the cross, and Jesus does not even want to entertain it. 
the cross is the central part of his ministry. The only reason I'm here, Peter, is so that I can go to the cross. This is not something that's going to sneak up on us. This is not something that we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants. This is why I came. And as we sing before, this is my reckless love, that I will beat down the wall that separates between me and my father, you and my father in his holiness and your sinfulness, I will break that wall down and I will leave the 99 and I will come to you with my reckless love. So we begin to see that. Look at verse 34. Watch where the conversation goes. Again, always read every verse in context, folks. Jesus turns to the others and he makes this familiar statement. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. How many of you have that passage still connected to the passage before? Again, they didn't have verses and chapters and all that when the Bible was written. But do you see in your Bible that it's all connected? In other words, it goes together? This statement here, this calling of discipleship, this calling of fellowship. Hey, you're going to be a follower of me? You're going to be a follower of Christ? Here's what it means. You, you died yourself and you follow me. So it sounds strangely familiar to more of him, less of me. Strangely familiar to the whole subject that we're addressing. Now, now, two truths that we get out of this. Here's the two things. Take home, put this into practice, live and breathe this. First, speaking truth and love starts with connection before correction. Speaking truth in love starts with connection before correction. Does Jesus know Peter? Two, two and a half years. I mean, he already knows him. He knows all things. He's connected to Peter. Does Peter know Jesus? He's seen Peter. Jesus do these things and do miraculous things. There, there's a relationship here. Remember that there's kind of a key word of understanding the speaking truth in love? And it is not for us to go out so much in the streets and that we just go, hey, you know how wrong that is? Hey, you know how wrong that is? Hey, buddy, come over here. You don't know me. I don't know you. But let me tell you how wrong you are. This is really not what is meant by speaking truth in love. That doesn't mean that we are not to be light in the darkness. That doesn't mean that we're not to take the hope of the gospel and the hope of moral living out to a world that desperately needs it. But to speak truth in love, if we want to keep it in the context, what we see is that there is a connection, a relationship, before there's correction. Let me ask you. You want to hear something that is not so pretty about yourself from a trusted friend that you're connected with or a stranger that comes up and does not know your life and the weight of the world upon your shoulders? Which one do you want to hear from? You want somebody who's connected or somebody who's disconnected from you? That's why most parents don't hesitate to bring correction to their kids because they're connected brought you in this world? We don't hesitate. Why? Because we're connected. We're connected. It's not just because here, job of father, job of mother, you correct your kids. No, we're connected. So we don't have a problem with telling them the truth and we don't have a problem with doing it in love. We love, the love is the motivation of the truth and the truth is the motivation to love them more. 
Relationship is foundational here. It is in the Ephesians passage because he's talking about a church body like this. He's not talking about us just taking our spiritual gun out into the world and firing off moral laws. Again, we are to be light. Don't hear that. But in this context, connection comes before correction. Let me put a really quick word here, guys. I, I like social media for, for some purposes. I, th- I think we can, it can help get some word out. I use Facebook and that. You might notice I never discuss anything that's kind of controversial uh, on there. I think it's a waste of time. I'm not trying to preach against you if you do that. If you want to go in there and talk about this past week, there should be gun laws, there shouldn't be gun laws. Guys, I've just, I've never seen a, uh, I've never seen a mind change because, oh man, you said that so well. I am now decided that I am giving up this whole atheism thing and I'm a firm believer in God. I just haven't seen a lot of that through the disconnectedness of social media. You don't, I mean, maybe even if it's a friend and you're kind of, but you don't know who Sly Bob 74 is. It's very ineffective. And, And yet it's in that anonymity that we see people yelling out and shouting their convictions. Please hear my heart in this, guys. I just think there's a much more effective way when I know my brother and my brother knows me and all of a sudden we, we have maybe something that we're challenged with and how do we interpret this? I think it's just, you know, when we know each other, we can trust one another and I don't know just firing off, here's my opinion and then him firing, well, I, here's my opinion. I don't know when we do that in anonymity, I don't know how much it accomplishes. It's not so much that it's just wrong. I just don't think it's effective. What God has said is effective for the body of Christ is that you and I in relationship with one another as we see each other's lives and maybe all of a sudden we're going, you know, I, I see this person. They seem troubled. They seem to really have to be heavy hearted. They seem to really be kind of discouraged or even depressed or maybe even a little bit angry. But I love them enough and we're connected enough and we have a relationship and we're in this relationship together and I'm going to go up and I'm not going to say, hey, what's the matter? I'm going to go up, hey, brother, Usually you smile a lot, and I just haven't seen you smile in a while. I love you, brother. Is there something that, can can I pray for you? Can I do this? And and then we come and we connect. And then maybe when there does need to be correction, that because of that connection first, that they actually hear the correction that comes. That was the heart of the Ephesians passage. It's the heart of this. Let me ask you this. Let me sum it up this way. Was Jesus' purpose in that verse, when he says, get thee behind me, Satan, is his purpose to push Peter away or to draw him closer? He's not saying, Peter, you failed the test, you get out of here, you are no longer, we're down to 11 now. I knew we were going to get down to 11 eventually, but now it's just, it was a little bit earlier than I thought. He's not kicking him out of the club. He's not saying, you can't follow me. The whole purpose of this correction is it's a loving correction and it's to draw him back into right thinking. A call to speak the truth in love is not, please hear this, is not a call to speak your mind. No offense. 
we don't have a whole bunch to spare, guys. And I say that in all seriousness. For, for us to use this phraseology of speaking the truth of love and just doing it, well, I'm just going to give them a piece of my mind. This is not the biblical context. It is not God honoring. It is not what Christ did. He did not give Peter a piece of his mind. If anything, he says, I'll give you a piece of my heart, Peter, because you don't see this yet, but you'll see it. You'll see it. When the Holy Spirit comes, you'll understand and you will be passionate about it. But until that day, I love you, brother, and I'm going to call you into firm correction because we're connected, and I love you, and we're in a relationship, and so I'm lovingly going to try to pull you back into right thinking because what does speaking the truth in love really deal with? False thinking, false doctrine. And he was thinking falsely. It's a call to compassionate, inviting someone that you have a connection with to draw closer to truth and closer to maturity in Christ. Go read Ephesians 4 today, and, and you'll, you'll kind of see that in the context of what Paul was saying. Because it's no wonder that in Ephesians 4, as you get down to the end of that, listen to Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good to building up, as fits the occasion, that it might give what? grace to those who hear. Here's the second truth. The first one, be connected before, connection comes before correction. Second truth, love-based correction builds community. It actually builds connection. When you can trust the words, that's what Proverbs says, when you can, you can trust the words, even wounding words of a friend, because there's connection and they love you. We've said this before. How many of y'all, when you were 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, or maybe in the birth of your first child, wanted to call your parents back up and say, I'm just sorry. Sorry. I understand now. I get it. And I am sorry. For all those years, correction builds community. You feel closer to mom and dad sometimes. Not estranged. Because they corrected you. You actually you begin to honor that. You begin to say, that's the kind of parent that I want to be. I guarantee you, if I ask a 13 or 14-year-old, they're not feeling that. My mom and dad hate me. I mean, we were all there. That's not bad kids. That's kids. And we were kids. And we believed that. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up, as fits the occasion, very important phrase there, that it may give grace to those who hear. Isn't that what we want to do with our kids? We want to build them up. We want them to become mature. We want to have unity in our own family. I mean, isn't that really where correction kind of aims itself inside the family? Man, if we can just get through one dinner without anybody being offended and everybody getting ticked off, I mean, have you ever been there? Seriously, guys? Can we just get through one dinner? There's only four of us. Can there really be that much chaos among us? Connection comes before correction. Loving correction, compassionate correction, actually builds more community, more connection. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. 
That should be in some wise book somewhere. Because that's just true, guys. That doesn't mean that if you come to me with a word of correction, that my pride is not going to swell up, that my back is not going to bow up, and that there's not going to be an initial resistance to something. Rather, you come to me in brotherly love and compassionate love. We're connected. You're an elder of the church, and you come, and you, you give some instruction. That doesn't mean that the old pride of Bobby won't kind of straight up, but then I'm going to go home that night, pray for that night, or maybe it'll take a week. Maybe it'll take a couple of weeks. But I'm going to go, you know, Radley loves me. That man loves me, and he loves the church, and he loves Christ. And because we're in relationship, you know, I didn't want to hear that, but Radley's not the type to just come up and say something. Even if it was kind of grating and it kind of hurt my feelings, that isn't for my maturity and for the good of the kingdom. That's where we get to when we're 18, 19, 21, 22 as, as growing kids. And that's what he's inviting us to as the body of Christ. Those that leave, lean very heavy on the truth side, go around with two six guns or you know, six shooters. You've appointed yourself sheriff of the town. People don't have to ask you twice about your opinion. <laughs> this may be a call for you to be willing to connect deeper in, in, in love before correction comes. That, that you kind of, you know, you still have that heart for correction. You still see things black and white, and praise God for you. We need people that really speak truth. But maybe that's a call for, hey, I know I kind of lean over here, so I want to balance truth and love. And so, God, will you teach me to have the love and the compassion that you had when you approached Peter here? For those that say, you know, I'm kind of the shy type. I could never tell somebody. You know, I, could, I can see it and I worry about it, but I'm just praying for them. That's good to pray for them. Please do. Pray for me when I'm in error. But please hear this invitation. Please, in love, come and tell me. We all have blind spots. We all have blind spots. And nothing is more wor worth more than maturity in Christ and unity in the family. So if you're that kind of one, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm the lover, not the fighter, <laughs> pray for a boldness. God, when you laid upon my heart, help me to love enough to overcome my shyness and my fear of hurting feelings and help me in love they already, they're going to know that you're already that loving person. They know that. Just like they know the other person is, oh, I don't have to ask her or him twice. They know that about us. So you ask God, God, will you round me up? Will you help me to be the fullness of, of, of like Christ in truth and love? Let's pray together this morning. Father, we read, let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Father, I don't know if Peter went off and, and sulked for a while. I don't know if he bowed up. I don't know if he began to weep. Father, I don't know how he reacted. You, you really don't give us an initial reaction there. But Father, I know that probably years to come, maybe weeks to come, Father, he began to see those words. And Father, he began to say, hey, the day I probably felt the most loved of Christ is all is when I was so thinking wrongly and Christ, in a direct way, called me back into a way of thinking rightly. 
May we be a church. May we be families that reflect this truth and love. That we will strive for unity. That we will strive to help one another when we come up against false doctrine and false beliefs. And that, Father, that we come back. And so, Father, our prayer is not for necessarily everybody else that, that is doing wrong. Father, our prayer and our, our confession as we close this morning is, Father, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour, we need you. And we pray, Father, that you would equip us to be those that speak truth and love. And our families, and this family, and, and the community that you've allowed us the privilege to be a part of. We need you, Father. And we come in that confession now as we pray all this in the hope of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.